How are you this morning, church? Don't lie, don't lie. Yeah. Some very sober uh, readings. Uh, I don't know about you, I'm, I'm sometimes, uh, yeah, particularly even more so in my younger days, I was quite cynical, and so whenever a bit of the Bible was skipped, I'd go and have to look at it. What, did, what were they skipping? And so there was a part in Job that was skipped. And this morning, there is so much in our readings that is quite sensitive. The issues are sensitive. And uh, part of what Job was saying, uh, some of the language he was using, he, he was cursing the day of his birth. He wished he was a stillborn baby. And, and I, I didn't want that read out the front without at least some sense of warning or disclaimer. Uh, if not in this sermon, uh, but in this whole series, we are not talking about issues that we're just going to intellectualise or have an intellectual dialogue about. These are real issues. People have real suffering, real troubles, real difficulties. We will all experience deep grief and deep loss. And if those feelings and if issues are raised for you, memories are raised for you, my encouragement is don't be so quick to push it down. I want to suggest that this morning and this time and this space is hallowed space where God may wish, where God I know desires to do a work of transformation in you. So please, if anything is arising through this message, through this sermon, through this series, please let God have his way. I'll share some ways in which you might be able to do that later. But as we're still getting to know each other, I thought I'd share a little bit of my testimony. It was something I had to write in my first year at Ridley, um, and uh, you'll see soon why I'm sharing this part of my testimony. In 1997, in my final year of high school, I found myself on the side of our school oval, alone and out of sight, holding a piece of broken glass in my hand, staring at my wrist. The short of it was I didn't do anything to harm myself. But as I sat before our concerned vice principal later that same day, who also happened to be my English teacher, so she knew me well, I listened while she shared some words I will never forget. Firstly, she told me that I was more important than a piece of paper which stated that if I completed, sorry, she told me that I was more important than a piece of paper which stated that I'd completed my year 12 and that if I needed to leave school to take care of myself, I should. Secondly, she told me that I wasn't going to believe what she had to say next and it was this. Jerome, in years from now, you'll be a better person because of this time. She was right. I didn't believe her. But she was right again. I came to believe that God did, did use that time to shape me for his purposes. Let me give you a few background details into what led to my depression at that time. I'm the middle child in one of three boys. I was born in Sri Lanka and moved to Australia when I was just eight months. I grew up in a high Anglican church I attended a Catholic school until grade five and then switched to an evangelical Christian school, that was Maranatha, which ended, which ended up being a significant factor in my life. For my parents, financial security 
was their understanding of freedom due to their experience of poverty. So there was a lot of expectation in regards to my studies. I became a perfectionist whose worth was found in my performance at school and in how others viewed me. A perfectionist who was imperfect, living in an imperfect world. Eventually that catches up on you, thus depression. I was angry at God for allowing this to happen, for not showing me what I must do, for setting standards which I could not live up to, but mostly for remaining silent in my pain. That's how that testimony starts. Maybe I'll finish it. But for the moment, let me just quick recap. We are looking at the story of Job. We are looking at the issue of suffering. Um, as Andrew helpfully reminded us last week, it's helpful to think in the term of narrative, story. It is a story being told, and as a story, uh, writers put devices in there to help us see what we should be looking at, what we should notice, what we should concentrate on. And so the story is set up for us to particularly look through this issue of suffering. Conventional wisdom, um, for conventional wisdom, you might go to the book of Proverbs. Proverbs is almost black and white. Um, the wise, they live like this, and these are the consequences. The foolish, they live like this, and these are the cons consequences. Be wise. It's very black and white, very cause-effect. But then you've got the books of Ecclesiastes and the book of Job, which are almost a response to that kind of wisdom. Life's a bit more complicated. Sometimes things seem meaningless and confusing. And the reason I'm suffering is not simply because of my sin. You can't draw that line so easily. And certainly the book of Job is addressing that. So you have this man Job, the greatest man among the people of the East, prosperous, wealthy, um, not only prosperous and wealthy, but his character is brought to, to the fore. Three times it tells us he is blameless. He, ha he is um, upright and he fears God. He has a right understanding of his relationship with God. God is God. He is part of God's creation. God is worthy to be worshipped. He is upright in his relationships with others. And so here we we have the beginning of a story and the setup is that we have this heavenly scene between God and an enemy, an adversary. Uh, Satan is the name given, but adversary just means adversary. And so in this um, interplay between God and the adversary, um, God says, have you noticed my servant Job? Job says, uh, Satan says, oh, he only fears you because you've like, put this protective hedge around him. Take all that away, take away all his possessions, and he'll curse you. And so God allows Satan to do that, but Job does not curse God. And then again, um, we have another interplay between God and the adversary. And again, Satan says, well, you know, if you, if you touch his flesh, then he'll curse you. And again, he's allowed to do that. And again, Job does not curse God. And that's where we come to chapter 3. And as we come to chapter 3, finally, we're probably looking at months. In, in chapter 7, we know it's at least months of suffering that Job has experienced. His friends have, uh, coming from different parts, have organised to come and, and to be with Job. And they've been sitting with him in silence for seven days. And finally, out of Job, Job's mouth, 
he spews out his lament. So when it rains, what is the right response to suffering? Well, for starters, if it's raining, don't pretend it's not. If it's raining, don't pretend it's not. That word blameless that's spoken of Job three times, uh, it, it doesn't mean um, perfect, it doesn't mean sinless. Job himself in his own speeches will tell you he's not sinless. It's more akin to integrity, genuineness, authentic. We are a community seeking to be an authentic expression of God's transforming presence in Emerald and the Hills. And if we are to be an authentic expression, it requires us to be authentic with ourselves, with God and with each other. And we already know that in this world, we will have trouble. That was a promise Jesus gave to his disciples. Hang that up on your wall. We hang up a whole lot of other scriptures. Jesus promised in this world, you will have trouble, he says to his disciples. He did say, but take heart, I have overcome the world. But the promise is, in this world you will have trouble. It's a promise he gave to us. You can be assured that in this world you will have trouble, I will have trouble. So in the light of that, we're called to live an authentic life. And so what does it look like to live an authentic life? Well, I think we're called to attend to our emotions. We're called to face and express them. We're called to lament, a passionate expression of grief and sorrow. This is Job lamenting in verse 3. May the day of my birth perish and the night that said a boy is conceived. He's, so he didn't curse God, but do you know what he curses? He curses the day he was born, the day he was conceived. In verse 8, may those who curse days curse that day, those who are ready to rouse Leviathan. He, he imagines that somebody could curse that day in such a way that it wouldn't exist, that, that this imaginary person would also rouse Leviathan, this mythical sea monster, the monster of chaos, uh, who opposes the beauty and goodness and the order of creation, that somehow this supernatural creature could be called forth to blot out this day of his birth. In verse 23, as he nears the end, he's not only now looking at his own life, but he's looking out at life in general. But he is seeing it through his perspective and where he's sitting. And he looks out and he says, Why is life given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? He sees life as almost, it's hidden. His path is hidden. It's meaningless. It's purposeless. He doesn't know where it's going. And now he feels hedged in. It's an interesting word because it's the word Satan used in the opposite sense. Satan used it in speaking to God and said, you've put a hedge around Job and the hedge there is a protective barrier against all that's wrong and trouble and suffering. You've put a hedge around Job. Now Job uses that same word, but he sees it as being hedged in, trapped in this life of trouble. And in verse 26, the final verse, he says, I have no peace, no quietness, I have no rest, but only turmoil. It is a bleak picture. Psalm 88 is considered the darkest of all psalms. 
over two-thirds of the psalms are psalms of lament, but most of the psalms, they at least have some glimmer of hope or some remembering of God or turning to God. Psalm 88 is the bleakest. It doesn't have that. And, and it ends. Psalm 88 ends with, You have taken from me friend and neighbour. Darkness is my closest friend. Now the psalms became the songbook, the liturgy of God's people in worship. And over two-thirds of them are lament. Where in the church is space for lament? Where in the life of God's people is there space for lament? Healing, healing involves facing our hurting. Healing involves facing our hurting. When we ignore the loss, the grief, the sorrow, the pain. It interferes with God's transformative purposes for our life. God is longing for us to grow up into Christ. And part of growing up sometimes is opposite to what we think. We think growing up, sometimes in inverted commas, as mature Christians, in inverted commas, we think that being mature is we don't complain. We quote to ourselves all those scriptures that... Um, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those of, who love him. Yes, he does. That scripture has aided me time and time again. Suffering produces, you know, rejoice in your sufferings because suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope, and that hope won't disappoint us. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you um, endure trials of many kinds. We sometimes take these scriptures which are so true and we misapply them in a time when we need to express our grief and our sorrow. We ignore the many scriptures that are littered. There are words littered throughout the Bible of people lamenting and grieving. And it's part of how we are authentic with ourselves with God, with each other. Attending to our emotions is not the same thing as being led by our emotions. Just in case you're concerned, attending to our emotions is not the same thing as being led by our emotions. Our emotions are not always a reflection of ultimate reality of all that's going on. But they are always pointing to and expressing something that is true. They are always pointing to and expressing something that is true. If I feel alone, my theology, my understanding of God tells me that's not true. Jesus told me, told us, told his disciples, I will never leave you nor forsake you. God has given me his Holy Spirit. I'm not alone, but I feel alone. And it may also be that there are many people around me who love me, who care for me, who have much time for me, but I feel alone. And if I don't address that, if I don't face that, then I'm not being honest. In fact, sometimes, it's almost as though sometimes you bottle this stuff down and, you, but, and the problem with stuffing this stuff down is it leaks out anyway, in different ways, in addictions, in gossip, in sin, in all sorts of ways. And so when it finally does explode, it's almost as though God's saying, I'll finally drum you here. I've been present with you. I've been waiting for you to be present with yourself and with me. We've got to be authentic. 
true. We've got to face these things. If you're concerned about, I don't know if I can lament, I don't know if I can spew this stuff out. God is big enough to take it, but just in case you're not sure you can do that, let me suggest some safe ways to lament. Um, I was introduced to the ingratitude examine and the gratitude examine. Um, uh, that word examine isn't misspelt. That word means um, it's a devotional practice of reflecting upon one's life, character, your actions. Um, and so the ingratitude examine would be maybe you get to the end of your day and you just start listing all the things that have annoyed you, upset you, frustrated you, disappointed you, grieved you. You just start listing them and just name them, just let it out. Knowing that there's another side to this, you, you feel free to do it. You, just, you know that you're going to come to the gratitude examine, so you're just going to let it out. And then once you've exhausted yourself, you stop, and then you begin the gratitude examine. And you might go, well, that's, that's a bit of a cheat, Jerome. You, you're, you're telling us we can lament, and then we're really also going to be grateful. Well, you don't have to feel grateful, but just, just start in the smallest way. Just, I'm glad I had food today. It's better than being hungry. I'm glad I've got a roof over my head. You can just start small and you might be surprised at how it snowballs. And that just opens up that, that there may be real feelings of negativity, but there are other things going on. That's a safe way, maybe, to start lament. Another way is palms down, palms up. Um, Richard Foster, I read it in his book, A Celebration of Discipline. Palms down, you're sitting, palms are down. And palms are down, similar to the ingratitude examine, you just blur. And in it, not only are you expressing uh, your griefs, you might also express your needs. God, I need this, or God, please stop this, or God, how long? You can just express whatever you want. And then you stop, and then it's palms up. I suggest don't do this while driving. <laughs> palms up. And in the palms up, we stop and we listen. It's God's turn to speak. And uh, I don't know what your expression of faith is in terms of what you think of when I say listening to God. I haven't heard an audible voice, but I do believe I hear God speak. Um, for me, it's been a journey of practicing, but it's like listening and just seeing what thoughts come to my mind. And knowing that I've prayed and asked God to speak, I'm trusting that he may be influencing my thoughts and putting thoughts into my mind, maybe even pictures and sometimes when lots of thoughts run in, I just stop and I slow down and I'm just looking for a word or sometimes just a short phrase. And of course, this is why we study the word of God so that we can also test some of these things. But, but it's God's chance to speak. You've, you've gone blah, now let God speak. Um, Counselling is another safe place where you can lament. Uh, there's such a stigma sometimes, I still think, around receiving or seeking professional help. I have and am more than willing to continue to seek help as I need to. I think the, the saying goes, healthy people get help. Unhealthy people don't know they need to, but healthy people get help. And counselling might be a place where lament can take place for you, where healing can come. Mentoring. Um, I had great friends around me in that time that I was suffering from de depression who, who were there for me. But you know what I needed? I needed somebody older who had travelled the path further 
wiser. I hope in this community we know our young people. I hope we know some of the things they're interested in, some of the things they do, they get up to. I hope that they know there are people here that they can approach. Mentoring, pre-ministry, or um, I think, uh, was it small groups? Small groups. Um, small groups is another place where in a trusted context, hopefully people don't think you're just complaining, but they're willing to journey with you, to carry your burdens. Prayer ministry is another place. We have prayer ministry that happens over there, but it actually should just happen in the life of the whole community that I could turn to somebody beside me and say, hey, just before you go, can you pray for me? I, I just have felt unnerved through this service or this week. And we know that there are people we can turn to, that there's at least five people who might know us well, whom I can approach and ask prayer for when I need it trusted friends. And of course, in this safe sharing, uh, there are dangers, aren't there? So um, we can become overburdened by other people's issues. Um, if you ever hear me say this, this is a caring question. It's not a I'm trying to fob you off question. I might actually ask the question, are there other people whom you can share this with? I, and that's not saying, I don't want to hear what you're saying. It's genuinely a caring question. I need to know that when you leave me, that this, what you've shared with me is, is deep. It's hard. I'm, I'm hoping and praying that you've got other people you can share this with. And so I don't just share all of my problems on my wife or on one friend. I, oh, this week in staff meeting, I learned I've got work colleagues as well I can share with. That's great. Carry my burdens. And I haven't mentioned church services. In what, in what ways can we in church services create space for lament? Silence is a good one. Silence just allows people to be. It's not telling them how they need to feel. It's just space to be. Songs. It's hard to find songs of lament. Sometimes you'll get some lyrics here and there. We sang, Blessed Be Your Name. We had that at our wedding. Um, sometimes there are lines in songs where you, you get a sense that it's at least touching on the difficulties and troubles and struggles of life. Or sometimes songs that simply declare uh, the character or the work of God. And so it's not a song which is always declaring, and there's nothing wrong with songs that declare our, an expression of how we feel towards God or what we will do in response to God. There are lots of psalms like that. But sometimes songs that just declare who God is, sometimes it's just a little bit easier. So I don't have to say, I feel this way. I just have to say, that's who God is. Or I can let others sing that on my behalf. But as I don't know you guys well, I can just say all sorts of things at the beginning. You sort of permit me. I don't think this church does well at lament and I don't think we do well at mourning with one another. I know that's harsh and... I don't really mean it because I'm not really talking about some marks. I just think churches in general. I just think people in general. I think, and, and the reason why I say this is because I actually think there's something naturally in us, an instinct, which is actually a right instinct that seeks to avoid pain. Uh, that if my hand's over the fire, I will pull it back. In fact, if I kept my hand there, you would think there's something wrong with me. 
and in the same way that you physically withdraw emotionally as well. There are situations and circumstances, abuse or all sorts of other things, in which it might be right to withdraw out of a circumstance which is not safe. But there are other contexts where in which part of growing up means that we need to be okay with the pain and the difficulty and sit with it, and which is very difficult. This week I was surprised that in preparation, God just started raising things and I'm like, oh, I thought that was dealt with. I thought I didn't care about that. And that's me preparing for a sermon. And so many of us won't sit and think about or consider things in our past or things going on that God might want to address and raise for us. And so in light of the fact that I think it's an unnatural movement to turn towards pain and that I don't think in the same way that, you know, if we have to choose between being around somebody that's happy and being around somebody that's not so happy, I think we often might choose or gravitate sometimes. There might be people we prefer to be with. Mourning with those who mourn can be a challenge. And in light of this, in light of this being our natural inclination, my hope for you is found in the cross. That when I look at Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane before he's about to be crucified and he says, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup from me. He's looking at what's about to take place and he's saying, I don't want that. He's being honest. Yet not my will, but yours be done. And on the cross... On the cross... My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In that moment, the unthinkable happens. Father, Son and Holy Spirit who are one. Something unthinkable happens that the Son of God experiences separation from the Father. And so Job suffered greatly. I mean, you read the story, it was set up as this great, severe tragedy and suffering. But the greater the innocence, the greater the suffering. Two people go to jail, one is guilty, one is innocent, both suffer, but the person that's innocent suffers more, surely. The greater the innocence, the greater the suffering. And here is the greatest innocent of all on the cross, entering into your pain and mine. And so when I see that, while I don't always have an explanation for why I have to live with some things or, or why this happened, and while I'm not offering a solution to our sufferings this morning, what I'm saying is that in the cross, I see a God who is not untouched or indifferent to your pain and mine. The cross is evidence of this. I see a God who knows your pain, who knows you, and he loves you. I was angry at God for allowing this to happen, for not showing me what I must do, for setting standards which I could not live up to, but mostly for remaining silent in my pain. Then one day, it just flipped. I don't know how it happened or what caused it to happen. 
But I thought to myself, if God did speak to me, would I know what he sounded like? Would I recognize his voice? I'd never really committed to reading my Bible, so I decided to. And I come across, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. So that's become the journey over these many years. So how do I get from a boy with a piece of glass in his hand staring at his wrist to a man in service of God's church and longing to share the good news of Jesus? Well, there's obviously more in this story than I have time to share, but I will say this. The one thing that has most changed my life is a simple yet profound message, the cliché Christian message, but a message so vital that the Apostle Paul prayed that the Ephesians would have power to understand it, that they would actually need power to understand it. The message is this. God loves you. When we believe that, everything changes forever.